in a world. You should just say that the whole time. You shouldn't say anything else today except in a world. In a world. I'm, I, don't, I don't really know how. All right. This is the part where we have to put away everything on the table that's shiny so it doesn't distract Joel in the middle. That was not. That was Alex. Technically, this isn't shiny. This is why we fired producer Alex. Try to crack into a falsetto. I am not one of the members of One Direction. I cannot hit a falsetto, so, uh, Alex, Joel. Here, let, let's use the method. Imagine a time that you heard a name and you in didn't know who they were and how you felt at that moment. See, that, that's helpful. Okay. In a world. <laughs> where you don't know these people on the podcast. You are listening to the Stack Exchange Podcast, number 56, recorded on Thursday, March 6, 2014, the 4th of Adar 2, 5774, and the second day of Lent. Today's podcast is sponsored by Patent Trolls of America. Patent Trolls of America would like to remind you that that's a nice business you've got there. It would be a shame if anything happened to it. <laughs> Today's guest is Micah Siegel. Wait, who? Micah is Senior Patent Advisor at Stack Exchange and also a Stanford Consulting Associate Professor in Engineering. And also here today, Senior Deputy Vice President of Technologification, David Fullerton. Hi. Co-Grow co-host, Jay Hanlon. Hi. And I'm your main regular backup host, Joel Spolsky. Hi, Joel. Good morning. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Stack Exchange Podcast number 56. Hey, guys. Uh, okay, it says in my notes, the show goes here. The show goes here. So we're excited to talk to Micah. We're going to talk a little bit about Ask Patents. We had some goals we set out to see what we could do in a year. And we're, it's been about a year. We're going to talk to Mike a little bit about what's happened. But before we do that, we're going to run through some of our regular exciting updates for Joel on community milestones. First off, yeah, we talked recently about the workplace. So I won't talk too much about how awesome it is and Not why I like it. Not this workplace, I hope. No, I never say nice things about this workplace and how I like it. That I meant the site, the community, I should say. We're using community more than site now because we think it's more representative. It makes more sense. But anyway, we talked about the workplace. I mentioned them now because they just went through what we call graduation, which is sort of where we do a full custom site design. They wear the, they put the robe on and the funny hat and walk down an aisle. Somebody half famous from another country gets up and says commencement yeah. means beginning, and then there's some boring thing. Yeah. <laughs> Pomp and circumstance. We're off topic. That's not what it's about. The workplace is now live. It's beautiful. If you haven't seen it, go check it out. It is a full design. Arduino is a new site that just went through a pretty successful private beta. It just went into- Oh, there's a red stapler. How cute. Joel is still on the workplace. There is a red stapler hidden on the workplace design. The whole design, I think, has a nice sort of playful feel. I think that works against kind of the stodgy nature of a workplace. I think it's a good vibe. But Arduino is our newest public beta site. Site started, I think, relatively small. It's definitely a dedicated community around the Arduino hardware, but it looks pretty good. And that's a topic I think we tried in the past that didn't get enough traction. There just weren't enough adopters and didn't have enough people kind of to talk about it. And this time, it's looking stronger. We're coming up on Arduino Day. I don't know if that's annual or not, but March 29th is Arduino Day. So if you don't go before then to Arduino. I can't keep saying that. That stock exchange. Is that a com. thing? Can you just declare a day? I believe if you just say it, it is. Yeah, I'm so not sure that's just, how it okay, works. I, I, I would like to refer you, <laughs> you all. You need a presidential proclamation, I think. I'd like to refer you that's to right. Arduino.org.com. Arduino Day 2014. Ah, see? That's just okay. like a like a conference yeah. that's not it's not a day it's oh no i see it's meetups all over the world yeah look at that they have a website yeah if it's just a conference huh. david why is it a national it's 29th holiday? of mm -hmm. march so that would be the nine minus it'd be the 25th day of life so <laughs> <laughs> okay so okay. arduino that's do, do you know what an arduino is that, jay arduino yeah it's like a it's like a little tiny mini computer board thing oh okay 
That was pretty good. That was pretty good. That was pretty yeah. good. Yeah, convincing. We also have Raspberry Pi yeah, if you want say, little who tiny things. Compare and contrast an Arduino and a Raspberry Pi is where I will fall apart pretty quickly. Raspberry Pis are tastier. Alex, there is a reason you were fired. Yeah. That is a Why good example. Why did we bring him back? What's going on? Yeah, we, this is yeah. Go go clean some pots. That would be nice. You said go wash some pots in the <laughs> in the kitchen. Okay. I think that's some pots from lunch. Arduino. If you have one of those Arduinos, you should go Arduino it at the site. It Ugh, is open. It is live. And the third one, another graduation after at long, long, long last. This is probably the site we had in our. Oh, can I guess? Can I guess? Uh, I'm scared. Yes. <laughs> money. Ooh, money. Money's right. I you love know, money. On the money. That was neither Ugh. offensive nor incorrect, y'all. This is a big day. <laughs> money got its full site design, and it's been a long time coming. This is a site that a while back we really decided was you know sustainable and strong, and really should get its own design. And because of our designer backlog, our long-term beleaguered designer, Jen, who did everything basically almost all by himself for many, many, many years, uh, we kept throwing things at him and he kept throwing back an amazing number, but we had simply yeah. more that could be done. And so we've increased our Eventually design he just staff. Gave up. Yeah. yeah. So Jen quit and we had somebody's <laughs> kid draw the site. It's, not, it's okay. It's, 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 it's not Decent. bad. We actually just scanned some dollar bills. It's and a big green smudge, kind of. Sort of looks like stock certificates, uh, that kind of thing. It's not necessarily money so much as it has that bonds. filigree. Oh, it's yeah. called filigree. That yeah. like uh... it's, it looks amazing on a Retina display. I actually cannot believe how amazing it looks. If you have like a Mac with a Retina display, or uh, even an iPhone or something, we have the high resolution version of the header graphics and stuff. This is a good. This is actually if you so, so if you've you probably of... never seen anything this high resolution on your computer. Plus, if you have a lot of money, you could buy one of those probably. For fonts and stuff. Um, oh, that makes sense. A lot of our you sites... could ask a question. How can I save up for to buy some bonds? To buy, I need enough money for a Retina device. A Retina device. How do I get it? I want to talk a little bit about money as our community of the week because it's a good moment because it was just recently designed. The design is really nice, I think. But more importantly, this is one of those sites I like this site a lot, in part because it asks very different kind of questions. It's mm -hmm. basically it's targeting generally normal people who have questions about financial matters, and so. There's kind of a broad gamut. So people actually ask kind of best practices questions. So a good example is, and a lot of these questions characterizes ones where there aren't an infinite number of great answers, but often more than one answer is very, very helpful. So you can ask questions, for example, about things like options. You can ask how like a call or a put option works, and someone will go into great detail to really lay out very specific, clearly right things. And there's kind of an answer and a best way to explain it. And then they have some best practices ones. So like one example that Abby pulled out is what's the best way to start investing for a young person just starting their career? And this is the kind of thing, it's super broad, there's no real right answer, but the top few answers are fantastic. And so it's actually what you get is sort of some of these questions generate what are almost like three seemingly legitimate experts on this topic, giving their top ways to think about investing and coming at investing. And they come from different directions. So one kind of gives a very broad, you know, focus on kind of learning these things and then breaking it into kind of retirement and current money and then go from there with those basics. Well, another one comes at what is most likely the biggest problem for someone in that scenario, which I think is actually probably one of the most useful answers. It's not that obvious as the right answer to this question, which is the first thing you should do is check if you have credit card debt and pay that off. And the next thing you should pay off is like lower rate debt, which if you're young coming out of college, that is almost certainly the right first test. So sites, I think, f full of questions like that, but it's not just best practices. They get into things like sort of economic or market questions. So there's a really cool question. In a competitive market, why is movie theater popcorn expensive? This is another kind of cool one. It's a question 14696 asked by Quant Guy. 
it seems strange that movie theaters can essentially charge this massive amount for popcorn, and people tend to assume, well, it's you know, it's like Disney World, you're trapped there. This hey, place, I answered that. Did you really? I don't remember. I, I don't seem think to remember so. answering that somewhere. It looks like your answer might have been deleted for being terrible. I, okay, I yeah, that's <laughs> probably what happened. It was uh, a really long time ago. I don't see it. What's the answer? What's the answer? Well, the basic question here that's kind of cool is he basically First says- First of all, the movie theaters are in the grocery business. Uh, yes, that comes out. So the fundamental premise he's laying out is it's not the same as Disney World because you can decide which movie theater to go to. And it's easy to. Like before you go in, if you know one charges $28 for popcorn, you'd think one would charge $12 yeah. for popcorn to attract people because it becomes a known fact about this movie theater and you have other choices. Yeah, but you're going to, you don't actually have other choices if you're going to see a specific movie. And it depends where you are. In New York City, you do. You do? No, but it's always yeah. the same chain that's showing the same movies, right? Because well, there's always one chain that gets all there the, is a bit the, of, the vile no, movies and one true. chain that gets all the blockbusters and it's one all chain. No, not though. really anymore. So what comes out in the answers is there's actually, there's really, really good answers. There's a few factors that contribute. Right. So one is simply the way people think about prices and that when you decide to go to the movies, when you are weighing the money aspect of it, Generally speaking, you deliberately notice and remember the price of the tickets because you feel like yes. it is the, is the cost to entry. You must pay that. And if the tickets feel outrageous, you will second guess how often you go to the movies. Yeah. Because the popcorn feels like an optional decision once you are there. You don't have to buy the popcorn. Even though you are 95% likely to, you wouldn't weigh that in the thing because if that bothered you, you just wouldn't buy it. Yeah. You just don't have to. And so it basically becomes severely like eliminated from your subconscious analysis is one reason. And then the thing overlying that they talk about that I didn't know that was really interesting, I thought, is there's an economic reason too, from the theater's perspective, they need that to work, which is that when they show movies, an enormous amount of the gross they collect on the ticket sales goes back to the studios. Right. So that mm -hmm. was what you were getting at, I think, when you called uh, it a supermarket, is that the, the movies- The theaters and the food business. Right. Yeah. That the only thing they have real margins on is the food. Yeah. Because for big blockbusters, the studios yeah. may claim up to 90% of the ticket sales. Yeah. They will also, incidentally, if you walk around the Upper West Side in the morning and, and you do. walk past the 68th Street movie theater, the big multiplex there, there's often somebody standing outside offering you free movie tickets to go to a screening at six o'clock on a weekday. When you put screening in quotes, it <laughs> yeah. sounds like a special kind of movie. Well, they make you think yeah, that I'm it's confused. a special kind of movie. This is a movie. And I don't know what the point of the story the, is. The, they were going to be empty at six o'clock anyway. And they basically figure if they can give away a few free tickets at six o'clock, they might sell a little bit of popcorn. Right, right. Given that nobody is going to pay for that movie. But it's interesting. You so weren't going to buy anyway. So we right. might as well give you a free ticket and hope you buy something. Some, some, and some, probably uh, you're more likely to buy popcorn if you got a free popcorn. movie ticket. That's like the right. airline should yeah. do that is give out free airline tickets because then they can sell you like those $6 <laughs> the free, the package peanuts? Yeah. meals and the movies. I don't know if the business model is the same. that was sort of Ryanair's thing. model. Yeah. Okay, we maybe off topic. But this is a great example of the kind of really interesting. Like I thought the if you know the Razor story that everybody does, you can quickly realize printers the same way. I never would have taken like movie theaters as another version of sort of that model whether you're not buying what you think you're buying. I like the way somebody has cut and pasted this question onto Quora. <laughs> oh, really? It's one of those. Very nice. But it's it's a great site. They have, why does gold have value? We won't get into that one, but that actually always makes me mad. Gold, but, gold uh, should not be valuable. No, actually, gold is a pretty good... Yeah. Uh, gold, it's a great conductor. Gold should be, right. Gold <laughs> yeah, should be as valuable as a slightly limited, extraordinarily good conductor that is shiny and malleable. Yeah. It is worth a hundred times that because oh, totally. of weird, antiquated things. If you actually, everyone... no, somebody took a, uh, went through like the entire table of elements, trying to figure out which of these elements should be used for currency. And if you eliminate the ones that are like helium, which are not really practical to use as, as currency for various reasons, you actually wind up with only three or four that really even work, you know, that they don't disappear and, and you know, they, they maintain their value for a long time, that they're easily subdividable. You really only get like gold and silver and maybe one or two others, but gold is clearly the best if you wanted to pick an element to use as currency. So I agree with that. Why gold was selected 
as a it doesn't tarnish uh, right as a limited semi-permanent like yeah. separatable thing yeah I've read the you can you can make slam it into tiny 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 amounts it is based on the premise that there is some reason we today in a yeah. complete like fiat economy world yeah are still assuming we must have an element that right. we're going to use as some high value thing that well, given well that you a, already had it you might as well keep yeah. it as but an, keep it as right. what there's a reason element. it was chosen as a currency Yes. Which is why the price is high. It's scarce. But as a currency, it was serving the same function that money does today. It represented yeah. value. Now that every country I don't think has it represented currency, value, I think it actually- just create gold out of nowhere. Unless right. Unlike diamonds. Diamonds are a, a more or complex Bitcoins. story. Yeah. Di diamonds are a fake rarity. Yeah. It was right. The whole thing fake is rarity. But they also do have very real and practical industrial applications. They're just not that good as a currency. Yeah, but di they're a terrible currency. Right. Well, and actually, and, and diamonds should be worth less. Diamonds are just excellent illegal currency. De Beers invented diamonds as a valuable yes. thing in like the 40s or something. Anyway, so personal finance and money, as we come into tax time, one of the things they're actually very strong at is you can ask tax questions there. The only thing you need to remember is to indicate your country of residence. So if you're, whether in the US or somewhere else, say where you are, but they're actually pretty good. It's a site with a bunch of experts. It actually grew out of an existing site that kind of merged in and became part of the family a long time ago. And that's right. You're saying the money was a Stack Exchange 1.0 It was site. an SC 1.0 yes. site yes. a long time, of, time ago. And it was, I think- The other one was Startups. It was one of the older, which is now oldest gone. sites was Chris, in the whole right? network. It wasn't Chris, Chris Ray, Chris Ria yeah. was the founder on that. Continues to be really active on this site. has been kind of a great leader for them. This sort of audiovisual is sort of left over from Stack Exchange 1.0 days. So, There's a handful of sites um, that are math ancient. Overflow. Well, that yep. site we just actually just, Avi, yeah. Avi, you're talking about social sound design. Well, yeah. that's gone through like several layers of mergers. Well, we just, we just brought them in. Yeah. But even back in the day, it was audio, then it was audio video, then it was audio visual. Then yeah. We just split them audio. out. The video and the audio weren't overlapping that much. But personal finance and money, it's fantastic. It's great. You should go check it out. Yeah. They can help you. You can ask tax questions there. And the uh, tax advice is tax deductible. So whatever you pay there, uh, you can deduct from your taxes, but it's free. So next up, we have features. Have you guys been doing it, David, with features? Your team done anything? No, nothing. It's been a slow month. No, we did a couple things. So I think I will demote you from senior deputy to VP to senior second deputy. Darn it. Assistant to the regional manager. Typing that in here right now. <laughs> Can I boss David now? Joel just typed that into a random text window <laughs> on his computer. It doesn't actually do anything. We don't, we don't let him actually do anything here. So we did a couple of things. The most noticeable was blogged about, which is the top bar. We added the ability to customize your list of communities. Yeah. So you got to explain that. Nobody's going to. All right. Gonna... So we added this, we originally called the site switcher, which is the, um, the pop-up at the top left corner, which is supposed to just kind of give you easy access to all the sites that you the network. participate on or are interested in. And initially, it was just kind of dumb. It just picked your top five sites by reputation, which lots of people pointed out didn't actually necessarily reflect what they were interested in now. So we decided to just make it editable. So it's uh, about what you'd expect. You go, you click edit, you can drag and add them, and you can add sites, including sites that you're not even a member of, if you just want to keep an eye on it, you're interested in it, checking it out. So that's... You can't, I don't think you can drag yet. Should I add? Yeah, you can. What are you really talking about? I'm dragging. It's not happening. You're doing it you wrong. You have to click edit first. Yeah, you got to click edit, man. You got to click edit. Oh, and, and then you got to grab the little handlebar on the left. To no, drag you can grab by. anywhere in the row. You can't grab where the link is because, oh no, you can. You can grab anywhere. No, I can't grab. Oh, what, you're probably using like Safari or some stupid broken browser. Oh yeah, you can totally grab. What are you using? Safari. Really? Yeah, Safari's terrible. We can't keep pretending no one has Safari. It's actually, the numbers are shockingly low. It's no. basically just you and, wait, wait, and David, your mom. Wait, David, are you saying it really doesn't work in Safari? No, it should work in Safari. It's probably a bug. Somebody will test that. All right. So that's a simple change, but something that a lot of people were asking for after we rolled this out. So we did that. That feature, by the way, done by 
one of our newest developers, Anna Lear, who you may know as a longtime member of the community and then a for a couple of years a member of the community growth team with Jay. And now uh, she's gone back to development. So she's back on the development team working on the Q&A websites. What? Oh. Anna uh, Lear doesn't work for me? Uh... Awkward. Word. This is a really uncool way to talk about this, David. I, so, <sighs> so that's there. Play with that. Hopefully, uh, you find some new sites. I added the workplace to my list of sites to check on too. every once in a while. Okay, I, I think just it's tried it in Safari and it works. Yeah, so Jay's just bad at dragging stuff. Okay, that was a small thing. Another thing we did, we're looking at moderation, always looking at moderation issues on Stack Overflow. One thing that's been kind of nagging us for a long time is the close vote queue on Stack Overflow. Basically, if you voted to close on something, it goes into a review queue where people can go and see what's been voted to close on and decide to close it or not close it. Unfortunately, that queue had gotten hundreds of thousands of items long over, well, just over 100,000, and it was just continuing to grow and grow and grow. So we made just a quick change to make it feel like progress is being made and to focus on the highest priority things in that queue. So now it actually just shows things that have multiple votes to close or flags first. If the community gets through all those, then we can bump it up to show lower and lower numbers. So basically, we started and said, let's work through all the ones that have four votes to close already. We worked through that queue really fast, then we dropped it to three and, and two. And actually also, at first it sounds like cheating, right? There is a psychological aspect that a list of a million things you don't care to participate in, while a list of a hundred you feel like you could achieve. But I think, to your point, David, it's actually highlighting the ones that need attention most. So the ones yes. that are either worst or best. The other thing that it's doing now is if there are reopened votes on any of these, those actually stay in two for attention because the suggestion there is that someone reviewed it and thought, no, this one shouldn't be closed. And those also, we think we want more people to look at and make sure we kind of get right. And the other thing that Josh did was initially they built a thing so you can actually filter by tag now. That was already in there, but nobody knew about it. Uh, yes, but it now calls it out. So the feature is more visible. There's like a little indicator I believe in the review queue that shows you you can pick a tag or maybe they're ads. Maybe they actually be ads when you go to the review queue. Yeah, we're doing a few things there. There's ads. Shog posted a meta post kind of directing people. We're, this is just a first step in a long journey toward making this better and more visible and easier to find and, and so on. So we just did a few simple things there. We're already seeing a lot higher participation in reviewing those and planning to spend a lot more time on that in the, in the coming months. So I have a feature suggestion. Uh-oh. So when you hit edit on the site switcher, the My Communities, yeah. the problem is there is still a box at the bottom, which is the where you're used to it being, where you pick the community you're looking for that isn't on the top. But if you do stuff down there, it actually doesn't work. There's a different box you search up top that is explicitly for add the new one. I see. We should hide one of them. Which is bad at it. So you clicked edit, and then you scrolled past the area you could edit to the thing you couldn't right, well, edit and tried to do stuff no, there. No, I clicked edit, and I went back to where I knew the other communities were, right, where they always right. are. That's a, that's a fair point. That could be confusing. I could see how dumb people like you are confused by that. Can you do it now? Well, wait. Can you just go do that? <laughs> we'll do it live. Do it live. Okay. Um, okay. So that's new features. Just a couple of them. Obviously, ongoing big project is our mobile apps. Just call that out again. The Android app is out. If you have an Android device, go ahead and download it from the Google Play Store. The iOS app is in alpha. There's a meta thread where you can sign up for the waiting list. We're releasing it in kind of waves each week to get more testers and fixing lots of bugs there. But that's going well. Obviously, we're going to launch it in approximately six to eight weeks. So look forward to that. Okay. We talk about patents. Let's talk patents. Patents. Patents are awesome. We love them. They're the patents. worst. So Micah Siegel is here. Micah, are you, are you still with us? Oh, no. We put him to sleep. You want to demote him to junior senior patent advisor, Joel? Micah Siegel is here. Sorry. He can be senior patent shoes. 
patent leather shoes. So it's been a year. So Joel, what did we set out to do here? Why do we do any of this? Why do we care about patents? Why do we bring Micah on? So what originally happened is a combination of things, but the important one is that the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office came to us and said, yo, we're getting all this flack from people because we're issuing all these patents that are what they call, to use a technical term, low-quality patents. And it's very hard for the patent uh, inspectors, is that the right examiners. word? Examiners. Examiners. Joel, examiners. Patent examiners, when they're examining a new patent, to actually decide whether or not a patent uh, represents something novel at the time that somebody is applying for it. And in fact, there is an awful lot of people applying for patents, shall we say, in bad faith or attempting to get patents on things which they probably know are not original or highly inventive, but what the hell, if they can get the patents, they should. Did they really say all this to you, or are you just paraphrasing now, Joel? Yeah, no, they pretty much said this to us. Really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, it was even... Uh, they said you were one of them, Micah, actually. Yeah. You, were, you were on their <laughs> list of those bad people. It was uh, David Kapos, was that the... David Kapos, David yeah. Kapos actually David came Kapos. to our office a couple of times and begged us to create a stack exchange for the purpose of crowdsourcing the finding of bad patents. And then he had us out there. Wait, he it's had not us... hard to find them, Joel. That's not the issue. Isn't it the prior yeah. art you want to find? The prior art, yes. Yeah, Sorry, you don't want to find, find the bad patents. Kapos invited us to his house, too. He had Alex and Sam and I. Well, we went over to the, to yes. the patent office. Yeah. I don't, think he, I don't think he lives in the patent office, just to be clear. I don't know. It's like Gracie Mansion. I'm pretty it, sure. It was no, a very nice office. The Naval Observatory. Going so. backwards in time, I think the reason he came to us is that there had been a project to attempt to crowdsource the finding of prior art that was done out of New York Law School. And the EFF was, uh, right, working with... I don't think so. I'm just going to go with New York Law P School. Pure to patent. We're talking about pure to patent, right? Pure to patent. Yep. And IBM. IBM was involved. They had a couple of companies, yep. too. They had a bunch of companies. And the reason was that, boy, this is getting way too specific, but they did what was essentially an academic research project to see if this was even possible and if you could possibly find prior art by asking people to find prior art. And those folks over at New York Law School had evaluated the platforms that were available and actually advised the USPTO that Stack Exchange was probably the best platform for this particular task. So the USPTO came to us and said, hey, could you do it? And we said, sure, we will do that. And we created askpatents.com, aka askpatents.com. <laughs> AKA patents.stackexchange.com, which is the no stack longer exchange. bad yeah. software patents. Yeah. Solved. And we mostly followed the normal rules of creating a stack exchange, which is you can ask any question you want to about patents is on topic. But the real reason it's there is for people to pose questions of the form. Here's a patent application. Is there any prior art for this particular application? But people are also using it for existing issued patents to try to find prior art. Um, for example, there is a patent right now that there's a non-practicing entity that's causing a lot of trouble for podcasters, coincidentally, mm -hmm. and they claim to have a patent on podcasting. Uh, they claim that they invented it in 1996, even though wow. there's an outrageous amount of, well, they, they've actually bought a patent that was originally right, issued in of 1996. Course. And there's like five pages of prior art on that. I mean, the thing that they patented is, is really silly, and there was a lot of people doing that at the time. So that one probably won't stand, but there's great prior art for that on there as well. And we've actually had, I think, quite a few patent applications that we've managed to find prior art for that was sufficiently convincing, we believe, to the patent office that we uh, blocked a few bad patents from getting issued. Yeah, so maybe Micah could explain more about yeah, how that works. Let's talk about how we got there a little bit, I think, yeah. and then we'll come back to the results so far and we kind of hope to do next. We worked pretty closely with the PTO initially. We went out there, we talked to them. They were really enthusiastic. One thing I'd dispel, but the examiners overall are more specific to the fields than I would have guessed. Like, I think we always think, oh, what does this guy know? They've got people who used to work in semiconductors, doing semiconductors and all that stuff. They actually also, it was amusing, they introduced us. They did not seem to have picked a patent examiner at random. He was like one of their youngest guys. He had like a Lego chessboard he made himself. Like, they're like, who's the guy to introduce the tech geeky guys to? Yeah. 
and they had us sit with that guy. But ah, um, there's a lot of patent examiners. There's like th- there's thousands a ton. of them, and they're in a now, union. They do seem to care. They take pride in what they do. They don't have sure. enough resources necessarily to find all the right stuff. And that's where we thought we could come there are also, in. There's so many of them, and it's such a standardized process that they have to follow. They're expected to have like a 16-hour average to get through this thing, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. And it's uh, pretty 22. structured. Yeah. Maybe Alex thinks 22. Yeah, it's, it's very structured. Like, they have a set of resources they can go through yeah. to it. There's a certain number of hours they're kind of going to spend on each phase of the whole thing. and They don't really spend a lot of time doing general research. Like, I don't think that they... Let's generally right. just type the thing into Google. Well, or what they ask said, on well, their generally for for prior art that they're looking at is yeah. prior patent art. Yeah, right? which well, is but false in terms so of what you're, legally makes. You're describing prior art. what a lot of the time they have available and wind up doing is. You're yes. not describing what what is expected what in such a review. Right? So prior yeah. art is anything. But you're right that they basically what they usually prior look art for. could be anything published in any language in the entire history of the world. Right. They they essentially going have back to the beginning two of time. Core databases <laughs> that they use internally that like you got to check these. And one is basically every patent-related thing ever in the patent system. Yeah. And the other one is like, I think it's sort of like a library of Congress. Like, it's an official list of the books. The Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, it's, it's like that. It's a very... <laughs> it's the Petit La Russe. It's a little French <laughs> mini encyclopedia. It's Encarta 95. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, they updated it, and I thought I got to get... Okay. They... Uh, <laughs> And they did say, like, there's some cases where they'll Google and, like, an examiner might know something's out there, but it's just not part of their core system as much to be looking to out check it. across the universe. But anyway, so... I mean, it's obviously an impossible problem. If you said you must examine all printed material for each patent, that is obviously, you know... Right, and that's where, to problem. my view, in the, the perfect world, what we dream of is basically they go, all right, we've got this one place we know to look, we've got the second place we know to look that have decent odds and have a lot of stuff. And, yeah. and then the third thing you do is there's this group out there that probably knows all this crap, and as long as you ask that group... They will find something if it's well known because you're talking to the right community and they've seen it all. Right? Yeah, that, would, that sure sounds like something Stack Exchange is good at. Well, and our hope, they were in theory very supportive of this. We haven't gotten to the point where they've been able to do Our, our hope was that eventually they'd basically say, and so if you think there's something out there on a certain application or you feel like you haven't found something that probably exists, you should just put it up there. The examiner should be able to say, hey, has anyone seen anything that looks like this? Yeah. There's complex, boring legal reasons. They, they've had trouble. They, the administration there really wanted to do that and they've had trouble getting legal clearance. There's a weird thing called a protest that they're not lot allowed to engage in and so you get this weird thing where examiners are supposed to find prior art but by asking for it they could be deemed to be advocates trying to fight the patent based on their lawyers interpretations there's been some difficult they've been worked closely with us but we haven't been able to get to where they could say give me the prior art for this which would be the most needless to say a field that is rife with lawyers yes yes there are plenty of lawyers so anyway basically that brings us to us and to micah and micah the way i thought about it was when we started at least in my head i'd actually started thinking well the real thing we're going to need to do is figure out how to get a whole bunch of people first to put up applications. You know, I've found the horrible application. I want to get rid of this thing. And what we realized is at the point an application is filed, there actually aren't that many people, at least that many that we can find, who are on the other side of it, knowing about it, looking for it. And I think much talk a little bit about kind of what shifted and, and where you took us as far as thinking about what we had to achieve first as opposed to finding people to post those applications. Oh, sure. I mean, I think there's sort of three questions or types of questions people were asking on the site when we first launched it. There was a set of questions around the patent process. You know, is this patentable? And detailed questions about assignments and so forth, people who wanted to get patents. And then there's a set of questions that always got lots of publicity, which were around the issued patents, especially if they were appearing in lawsuits from patent trolls. And then finally, occasionally, there'd be a, a question around a patent application. And when we looked at where we thought it could make a difference, I think that 
the middle category is good. That is the issued patents is fine. It's just not clear when we find the prior art, you know, how much good we're doing. It seems like there are services that do prior art searches for issued patents. A lot of money gets spent if people are already getting sued. And in fact, you know, getting that prior art in front of a jury or back in front of the patent office, it's just rather expensive. And more specifically, it's not scalable. So we could do it on a one-off basis. It'd be very hard to solve the whole problem. So we sort of took the second category out, meaning that we encourage people to post those. They're, they're free to do it. But internally, we're not driving a huge number of resources to like list every patent that appears in a litigation on, on the site. I mean, we could do that. It's just not clear that we would do much good except, you know, make a lot of noise. Well, so yeah. I think there's two big benefits with an application versus an issued patent, right? So the application, you can prevent the harm before it is harassing, you know, interfering with people trying to innovate. And two is that it's essentially free, right? There's work to do, but you can basically challenge an application as a citizen while an issued patent you have to take to court, right? Essentially, there's a huge cost in doing that. Yeah, or take it to the patent office. But you're right. The documents that get filed to challenge an issued patent, that's a whole cottage industry. There are law firms that specialize now in in putting those packages together and, and challenging issued patents. And it's not something that we would do that's scalable for us. But the applications, that's right. There's a lot of them, but the applications are more straightforward, especially with some of the tricks we've kind of put together for finding them and then getting the prior art in front of the examiner. We think that's a place where it's a sweet spot for Stack Overflow and Stack Exchange because we think we can make it much more scalable. And then in the first category of questions about the patent process, I think that may just be something that the community has questions and answers about. And so we're just sort of encouraging them to ask each other questions and answers just to keep the community alive. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, I think one of the first good jumps we kind of got to was figuring out what we needed to really spur the process. Again, initially, I think I had it wrong, which is how do we find the people who would want to post bad applications? Yeah. And then I think what we realized was our sort of powerful thing we had was all the people in our community who know about the prior art, right? All the people that have been involved in the software industry for many, many, many years. And maybe talk a little bit about sort of what we started moving towards in kind of trying to figure out how we could put the right things in front of them to leverage that information and actually make a difference on the side where we have the information already. Sure. So, you know, there's a ton of patent applications that come through the patent office and are published in any given month. Six or seven a day, would you say? Maybe 10? uh, (laughs) Applications in the the office? No, no, way way more than that. Two dozen. You guys want to take, I mean, look, there are like 600,000 applications in, I don't know, 2012, wow. which is about 50,000 a month. And about um, about uh, 15% of those are probably software patents. That's because there were like 40,000 issued software patents and about 250,000 issued patents altogether. So like 15% of them might be software. Wow. So it's about the same for applications, or maybe it's more, but let's just say it's the same. So that's like, you know, 50,000 times uh, 15%. And then probably like 7% of those based on, we could talk about how we know that, but about 7% of the applications that come through are what we would term problematic. If they were issued as their claims are written, it could be a problem. They're too broad. The claims are too broad. What do you base problematic on? And how do you know that only 7% of them? So it's really, it's really, really interesting. So if you look at these applications, when they first show up in the patent office, they're typically, you know, the vast majority of the ones that I've seen anyways, are, are very broadly written under the theory that the patent prosecutor, that's the lawyer who's trying to get a patent for his client or her her client, is going to get as broad a patent as possible under the theory that a broad patent is the strongest patent. That's actually not... They want to cover as much as possible. So they have an invention for a little gizmo that causes, you know, your your left turn indicator to do something in some special way when you're on a one-way street turning to a one-way street in a car, but they just file it as a patent on a car. That's the sense of it. I mean, if they get too broad, it's sort of a waste of everybody's just time. Just in the hopes that anybody that has a car can be 
And then yeah. they, they yeah. narrow as they go, right? And then they further say, and specifically in addition, yeah. if it's a car with windows, that's us. And yeah. then if the car also has seats, we got that. Yeah. And then eventually you get to this and a turning indicator. specific thing. And at some point, the patent office says, well, you can't have a car. You can't have a car with seats. You can't have a car with turning indicator. And hopefully by some attrition, you get left with something which remains, albeit narrow, but nevertheless useful to sue somebody with. Yeah, you can almost always get a patent issued if you're willing to get more no, and no. more and more and more specific. I mean, at some point, right. it's like an exercise, it's like a war of attrition. But that discussion between the applicant or the applicant's lawyers and the patent examiner goes back and forth and back and forth, and they file papers back and forth. And you can see that in public. It's all happening in plain view. And so it's almost all happening in plain view. Well, right. in the sense that if you can figure out how to download files from their stupid website, you can probably <laughs> figure it out. It, it's <laughs> but interesting. It's not, it's not it's as all simple as clicking it, the links. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a dated technology, so it's surprisingly difficult to get stuff out of the patent office. Right. You have it's to just, download image files or whatever. The original idea was you would just, you know, hitch up your, yeah. your horse and buggy and ride down and to, to go down to Washington, and where it would be on public ask view the, on ask Monday the through clerk Friday. for it. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, we actually have servers that are crawling. And, and captures and stuff getting filled out. So it's, it's, we sort of have to automate it on the back end to pull stuff out of what they call the public pair system yeah. to get scale, which is sort of surprising. But anyway, that's easier than trying to get a FTP API. interface these days. They're, they're really making progress. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I wish it was. <laughs> yeah, so they go back and forth until it gets more and more narrow, and eventually either the applicant gives up or the applicant gets a patent. But the question for us is just sort of when do we feel like there's something that could get issued that's dangerous? And so we watch and when they're first coming, if they're super, super duper broad, you know, statistically, they're almost certainly not going to get issued. The patent examiners find that and they and they kill it or they narrow it. The issue for us is when they get when they get more and more narrow and it gets toward the point where the patent examiner doesn't have a huge amount of time left to finish the examination. I just worry that it can get through just kind of because they happen to be there at the right time and people get tired. Yeah. And those are the ones we go after. It turns out a really interesting predictor of how dangerous a patent application is going to be is, strangely enough, the number of, of words in the first independent claim. That's what I was going to guess, because you get these independent claims, and if it's really long and complicated, it's describing something that's so specific that you can avoid infringing on it just by changing some aspect of that long description. Wait, but so are we say, oh, sorry, are we saying more words is indicative of broad badness? Or no, fewer, the other way around. Fewer no, opposite, words. Opposite, opposite. Yeah. Right, so fewer words is like, it's a thing. And Basically, then, for every word that's in the claim, that's something that if you just don't have that thing that that word says, if the word says red car, then you just make a purple car and you're okay. But if they've left out that word for red, then all cars, you can't just change the color and avoid infringing. No one wants that's a right. purple car. Why would, why would you patent yeah. purple? That makes no sense. Yeah. Well, because nobody's invented it yet. You that, should. That is, that is innovative. You could automate patent applications by just taking every possible combination patent of words and then just remove words until. Yeah. So I think, so, so Mike is getting into a, a little bit how, <laughs> how he started selecting applications. I, th I think one big jump almost, even before that, that took us a little bit to kind of figure out was that what we needed to do was put something accessible, consumable, and understandable in front of our audience that they could read. Yeah. One of the big first things to figure out is, you know what, forget trying to find who wants to post these patents. If we can find bad patents, what we need to do is grab the worst patents, convert them almost, because when you read a patent, you can teach yourself, you can kind of learn, but it is hard. It's hard to parse them. And over time, if you're good at it and you really pay attention, what you can learn to do is realize all this, like, you know, further that also adds the windows yeah. and the gas pedal. And what you can really do is you can boil it down to this is describing a car that can go underwater by means of having a fan at the back right. that focuses on clowns. Is that yeah. a thing? If you've seen a thing like that. Oh, can I buy that? 
Yeah. But what Micah kind of got to was we still obviously we post the patent and all the information, the link to it. And we had a bunch of parts. I should mention that at Google now, if you search for a patent number, yeah. you can click on like, you know, talk about this or find product. There's a button that they may discuss this, which isn't quite accurate, but that sends them right to us. And the yeah. EFF helped us. Google has actually been doing a lot in terms of just making it easier to read a patent in the version. Right. Yeah. When they display patents, they... They sort of have formatting and fonts and coloring yeah, and stuff right. that makes it a little bit easier to pay attention to what's well, important. And Google's always said that they are patenting the crap out of everything defensively yeah. because they are good guys and they sure. want to control the patents, which yeah. is exactly, I believe, what Darth Vader said right up, it, right <laughs> right up, up into up the, We need the Death Star as a defensive dun, dun, measure dun, dun, against dun, planets dun, dun, that would dun, dun. try and crash into us. Um, <laughs> no, Google's actually been a good partner. I, I, sh I shouldn't make fun of them on this. But anyway, so one of the first things kind of Micah got to is we're going to figure out the ones we want to attack. And then what we're going to do is we're basically going to take them and post them with what this is basically describing is this. If you've mm -hmm. seen something like this in code you worked on in the past, et cetera, throw it up here. And now all of a sudden a yeah. passerby can go to the site and go, oh, I totally worked on an algorithm that predicts yeah. date based on location. Or right. that doesn't, that, I'm going to go pat yeah. that. That's a good idea. Ads based on location. That's one we kept seeing over and over and over again by various incarnations of so-called inventors. Who, what, who are these inventors that are filing these things, Micah? I don't know. The, ones, it's the, the interesting ones to <laughs> oh, me are like in, the case of, in the case of the location-based ads, which yeah. just for whatever reason came up over and over again. There were a couple that were filed by people that when I went and Googled them, they were basically just, you know, lawyers out of Chicago who had, as far as I could tell, never written any code that was anywhere I, I could find. And yeah. it just seemed like they had this great idea that, hey, it'd be great if you could show an ad when I get near, when a I get Starbucks. within a radius of a business. Yeah. So I, <laughs> it's like a really good idea in they, 1991. It's so weird. There's so much, like, I, I don't want to say, it, like, you think that all the, the, the patent trolling that's going on is, is in bad faith. But so much of it appears not to be. It's just people that genuinely don't understand what programmers do and what's easy and what's hard about programming. That's exactly right. I actually looked at the podcasting, uh, the so-called podcasting patent, which is given to a company. There was a, uh, what was called, This American Life episode about this, wasn't there? Maybe it was Money, Planet Money. I don't remember. But the so-called podcasting patent was, was a company that was issuing, I, I think, recordings, audio recordings of magazines read onto cassette tapes and mailed to you. Was oh, that right? I think something like that. Anyway, I read the... Um, Where do I sign up? I read the... Uh, I actually read the patent for this. And so the priority date is 96. So this is, for those of you that are forgetting, 1996 was a period where there were a million web companies. There was... Podcasting was almost out. Um, there were an awful lot of things that looked an awful lot like that. And in fact, I actually have code that I wrote in that same time period that, quote unquote, violates this patent. I, I don't know if it... I don't have the right date stamps on it. So I'm not sure if it was before or after the actual priority date, but it's a very, very simple thing. It basically, to paraphrase, it says, you've created a system with media files on it, any kind of media files, and you've created a system whereby the client can ask the server for a list of media files. And when new media files become available, the client discovers that those new media files are in the list and then asks for them and downloads them. And this thing to a programmer is like, yeah, well, that's what we do all day long. There's no invention there. There's nothing hard about that. Supremely obvious. There are a million people doing some version of this in those days. Uh, Marimba was, is an example of something exactly like that. And that was like a 1995 era company. So there's a million, there's tons of prior art, and it's very, very easy. And so I, you have to assume bad faith in some way. But then again, if I was a lawyer, you know, I assume that everything that lawyers do is weird magic involving the incantation of magical English words. So maybe it's just impossible for them to see that this patent that they hold, I mean, that it's clear that podcasting infringes on this patent. It's just that maybe impossible for them to see that there was obviously prior art. They may not realize that 
it's not, there's no invention there. Well, and one of the things that makes the software interesting, sort of in how it's positioned as a patent, I think it's, I think Stallman talks about this a bunch, is software is the only thing that is both copyrightable yeah. and patentable. Yeah. And so what you've got is this weird conflict of it does, it, there's a model we can envision where we go, well, it's becoming the case that half of the complex, yeah. cool things invented are being invented in code. Yeah. But code is fundamentally a bunch of letters and words and terms right. in a certain order. <laughs> yeah. Right. And it's, so it, so, I don't think you know how code works. So it, copyright it's, is. <laughs> Uh, it's efficient. I believe Joel just explained it. It's a bunch of a bunch of weird alchemy with English stuff, words and, and lawyers. Signs. I don't know why the lawyers Add were there. Signs, dollar signs. I should have listened. <laughs> but anyway, so Michael, you basically started saying, all right, we're going to figure out the right ones to challenge that are of greatest concern. And what we're going to do is we're going to basically put these stubs out there. So if you wanted to come by and make a difference, you would see in front of you, if you've seen code or algorithms or a thing that is designed to do this, please describe it below that prior art can help either narrow or invalidate this application. So what'd you do? So how did you start coming at what to put up there? So we, at first, we just, we just kind of fooled around and looked for patent applications that looked like they would be in areas that Stack Overflow, you know, users, community members would, would have an opinion about. And it wasn't that hard to find a bunch, especially in software, that would be of interest to the community members. But eventually, when we tried to scale it up, we started to do more sophisticated Bayesian-type analysis to compare the groups of patents that were all on some topic or another. And then we sort of picked the whole topic, which is why some of the prior art requests on the site end up congregating on very specific topics. And then from that set, we then on a weekly basis, pull out the patents and look at the number of words in the first claim, like we were saying before, to pull out the 7% or so that are what we consider to be dangerous. And that's, we've just been feeding them into the site because it seems like that's not so hard for us just to do in a not scalable way at the beginning. And then eventually we'd love to have people do the same thing themselves and find their own applications to list. But for now, it's not necessary. It's, I think we just need to get people to put their eyes on the patent applications. Yeah, and yeah. I think it's an easy call to action, right? So right now you can basically say, if this bothers you, you just read an article about these terrible patents and you want to make a difference, go to the site, scan these plain English descriptions of what it is. And if you've seen something like that, describe it. And, yeah. and we will make sure that that gets introduced into the process so that the examiner can't you know, say they didn't know that when they review and potentially approve that application. So the first, kind of what you worked on, my, the first hack I loved was that kind of thing about being able to just filter by words to find some of the worst ones. And then talk a little bit about how we made sure it got to the examiners. Because while we do know the office has told us the examiners use the site, they look at the site, it's still in a very sort of unofficial capacity. So we don't know, like, are they always going to see it there? Is it always going to get to them? One good thing is if they do Google the patent application number, Google will route them right back there if it's been mm -hmm. posted and there's prior art. But we don't always know if they do that. Talk a little bit about how you dealt with that, because I thought that was kind of cool. So this, the Patent Office has a system, a new system, as of about a year and a half ago, to allow any citizen to present prior art for a patent application once it's published. And you can fill out a form, and you can... No, you, know, you, you cannot. There's no, <laughs> no, you, you cannot. No, we cannot. It's, it's theoretically possible. Yes. When you go to the you form... Guys have tried. The, the, we, we've gotten better at that. We get them in now. And actually, I think, I don't know for sure, but everyone I've talked to has told me that we are the first group to successfully get a YouTube video admitted as prior art in a file. Oh, wow. The challenge, of course, in that one is that they specifically require to use printed material and how do you get a video in. So we ended up printing out oh, no. screenshots of the <laughs> video, salient points in the video, and then putting it together in one big PDF and sending it and saying, here, 
To be clear, to be clear, the, here are all the frames from the video. The, cur- the current we chose the frame. We chose the twelve or so frames that related to oh, ECL. The current that would form, way better if you'd done the entire video. The current frame. form has six pages. It'd be a flipbook of rules. It then has seventy-two fields, and at the end, when you hit submit, it asks what printer you want to print it to, and gives you their mailing address. It is. It is. Is not, that right? Uh, I'm exaggerating. Uh, the last yeah, part. I think maybe it's changed a little bit since. You, it's not that bad, but boy, it's not something we could do at scale. I mean, they, well, they told us early on. I think I want to say they told us. I may be making this up, but I don't think so. Only partially. I think they told us that 75% of the submissions in at least the first few months were rejected on statutory grounds, I think, which is essentially that the format... Meaning a format. Um, the format pro- and the whole point was that this format let citizens submit. And again, yeah. their heart's in the right place. They're actually trying to do this, the right thing. But yeah. and this is a great example. Why did where- they not just take the form and give it to the patent examiner and have the patent examiner just exactly. glance over it and ignore it or not ignore it, but not... They're obviously going through some process of... Let's make sure that the submission is meeting some well, statutory you know it's, requirements. It, it's archaic rules and before laws. we even bother trying to read no, the words. No, 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 guys, it's not. It's not that you've been unfair. I, I think the basic principle, the underlying principle, is that at least as they interpret it currently, the dialogue for getting a patent is between the applicant and his or her lawyer and the examiner. It's there are two parties. It's not. A, it's not among those two parties and then the rest of the universe of people that has an opinion about the patent. And the examiner is representing the interest of the public good of whether it should get issued. But what the system is afraid of is lots and lots of people from the sidelines kind of interfering with that dialogue. But and hang so on. That's hang on. <laughs> and I, again, I think they've been great partners, but it, there's a fundamental problem in saying our goal here is to create a system where the public can submit prior art. And when you try to, they're like, whoa, 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 this is kind of a private conversation you're buttoning into here. Like, <laughs> well, no, but you know what? One of the issues in those submissions, the reason a lot are rejected is because they're deemed to be argumentative, not mean, like, but just like that they're, they use specific words that will get well, you this kicked is- out. This is a great example. That sounds like Stack Exchange. Yeah, no, not <laughs> no but that's a, that's a great example of where, not like, because when we asked about this, the one thing that struck me as really interesting is that what happens is someone cares, and so they go, aha, I found prior art, right? This is a monkey playing a tambourine a picture. I've got it from the 60s, sending it in, and they go and fill out the form, and they say, and so this is obviously similar yep. to this thing, and therefore this patent can't possibly be innovative. And yep. the point is the monkey... The existence of this monkey is actually thrown out by a committee before it gets to the examiner because yep. the argument has made the submission be deemed invalid, which doesn't seem like what they really want. Like there's a flaw there where the process should be stripping out what they deem argumentative, not bouncing the valid the useful information. Yeah. yeah. But, but yeah. Michael, you yeah. figure out this how to- does literally sound like the kind of conversations that people were trying to get to go away from Stack Overflow would be yeah. saying so, about their so Micah- behavior on Stack Overflow. So what what have we been doing to because that's hard. You got to fill out a lot of forms and you got better at that, but we got really good at that. We'll find out when the patent office does finally release the list of applications for which third-party submissions have been made. There's probably about a thousand of them. Wow. It will be really, really super interesting to go through that and see who's submitting them and why and whether there's any themes there. But we've got to be, I mean, just based on the people that I talk to, we're probably submitting more than anybody I've ever talked to in wow. terms of just volume of them. And there's no way we could scale that. It just, I mean, even if we had volunteer lawyers filling these things out and lots of macros, it would just, it just doesn't, it doesn't work at the scale we need it to work. There's another problem, which is that a lot of the lawyers we've talked to don't want the file history to reflect the prior art that we find, which is so right. weird. It's like, could you please find a square circle? You know, yeah. they're afraid that yep. generally that if the prior art gets in the, in the file history and then the patent issues anyway, that it's going to be a stronger bad patent. Right. And, and that's a fair point. Like they're worried about that and it might actually be true. So, so what would happen there is that somebody tries to file a patent we try to submit something that we think is prior art. It gets into the history. 
it is nevertheless not deemed by that examiner to be prior art. And later, when, let's say, patent troll goes off and starts some lawsuits based on this patent, somebody tries to use that same prior art to get it thrown out, and it was good prior art. But the defense is, wait a minute, the patent office already saw this and Bingo. rejected yeah. it back then. So the lawyers would prefer the prior art is introduced in court where the lawyers are being paid by the hour and not earlier by us. Well, it's not, it's, it's not that. Oh, I mean, the, the litigators are different from the prosecutor. And, and the litigators are thinking, kidding. the litigators uh, are worried about when it goes to court having the best case they can to defend their client. It has nothing to do with money for the patent bar. So uh, can we yeah. talk a little bit about how you're making sure that these things get in front of the right people? Yeah, yeah, sure. So we came up with a hack about six months into it just because we had to, which is we don't anymore fill out the the forms to submit it into the file history just because it doesn't scale. I mean, we might on a one-off basis if there were a good reason, but in general, our principle is we're not going to do that. Somebody else can do it. We're not going to do it. But we realized that, you know, what we really want is to alert the examiner that there is prior art, or rather there's a discussion of his or her application on a site like Gas Patents, and there's enough prior art that he or she ought to at least go look at it and form an opinion. That's all we could ever ask, right? And so what we started doing is we just, just started emailing the examiners. Like, all, all of them. Actually, we sent, we sent an email to everyone in the United States with the information. <laughs> when you say the examiners. We email the examiner of record on the application from time to time once there's enough prior art that we think it makes sense. We have an algorithm and then a, a scheduled email goes out, which just says, hey, your application is being discussed on Ask Patents. If you're interested in it, you can go to this URL and check it out. And we don't make an argument. We don't even put the prior art into the email because we're not trying to get anything into the file history or in front of the examiner as a backdoor. We're just, this is like a stopgap because we would love to have a world in which every application, or at least every software application is being actively discussed on the site and examiners just know to go to the site for every application. But right now there aren't enough. And so it would be ridiculous for us to lobby the patent office to tell every examiner to come to ask patents for every application. And most, the vast majority of them would not have anything to look at. This is our hack. I love this hack. It's sort of, I think it's cool in part because the submission process is very hard. It's very easy to forget the loss. And in this case, it's public record who the examiner is. Their emails yep. are very, very easy to discover. And it's not like we're blasting the whole world. You target someone and you say, your job is to know if there's prior art out there bunch of people here think there is prior art and they've received this personal notification. If it is my job to do that, it seems impossible for them to responsibly be like, I don't know who that crank is. I'm not going to look. Um, <laughs> I think curiosity has led a lot of them to come to this site and some fraction of them have found good prior art. So is it working? You guys be the judge of that. I mean, I think we've proven as far as I can tell that if we put the target on an application and it's truly a bad application and we get enough eyes from Stack Overflow directed over to the application that we'll get good prior art. And the math of that is pretty consistent. Like the number of people that have to look at the application and then the number of pieces of art we, we get out of every person that looks at it, the fraction, obviously, less than one. And, you know, we can, by looking at the numbers, we can figure out how many people have to look at one of these prior art requests to come up with enough prior art so that we statistically will get enough good stuff that then an email will be triggered to the examiner and he or she will come to the site. And then we know the fraction of those that end up rejecting the application, which is pretty high. It just happens kind of in slow motion. That whole process is very slow, and even six months is not enough to see whether it's working. But we do have a number of examples where it's very clear to me, at least, that the examiner is using the prior art that he or she saw from us. Yes, I saw. I killed one. You killed one, Joel. You killed a now famous one on window resizing. I killed a Microsoft patent. Yeah, it was, is that what it was? It was some ridiculous thing from Microsoft that they actually had in one of their own published documents from a year before, image resizing. <laughs> it wasn't a year before. It was a while before. They probably just didn't yeah. know it. I don't think they were trying to get one over the patent office. No, but I mean, if you like literally type, type the keywords from the patent into Google, the first thing you found was this other Microsoft document. 
describing the exact well, process. Well, and that's that part of that. That's exactly right, Joe. I mean, the fact that you could do it in five yeah. or ten minutes or two it's minutes. It's so easy. It really is just like type some of the keywords into Google. So that's not true, by the way. That's not true in, in most fields. Like if you were to look at a semiconductor process yeah. patent application, yeah. it is not the case in my experience that you could come up with a few keywords, type into Google, and come up with anything that would be remotely relevant as prior art. Because those fields, a yeah. lot of the good prior art is done in patents, and the examiners are good at looking for them. Yeah. I think the software is like a kind of a special case where it happened, the development, especially online software, developed so quickly, and there was no good reason to patent stuff for a long time that most of the good prior art, or at least a lot of the good prior art, doesn't appear in the patent literature, even in the applications. The so there's this dark matter of prior art that just, you know, it's just they need to be empowered to look at it within the patent office. Right. And I think the role here is that we have a lot of people that know about these very specific areas that without much thought can come up with some keyword substitutions, do a Google search, and then quickly scan through the results to find a couple of... Yeah, the keyword substitutions we, we discovered was a key thing because a lot of times they'll just use a funny word for something in a patent application, either because they're lawyers or because they're actually trying to hide it from the word that yeah. everybody else is using to make it harder to find prior art. Right. And they'll just, they'll just use a word like... Uh, what was the one? It was like was it DPI and did, did, was, was yeah. it they said resolution? Like, yeah, they said like resolution instead of DPI or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. A, pixel a, density. They said pixel density, pixel which is density. not a term anybody uses. Yeah, it's, not, it's always unclear if that's because they're trying to be precise and they're lawyers that maybe aren't as technical or yeah. if they, they're hoping that they can sneak one through. Well, I don't want to ascribe motivation to them, but half the time yeah. it's very, very hard to read software patents because they're using words for something that we have a different word for and they're just using a different word for it for whatever reason. That is one of the reasons it's so hard to read these patents is just all the... And that's why we rewrite the patent application prior art request. You know, we, we don't just post the patent application and say, go. We, there's a step in the process that we built where humans rewrite them. It doesn't take too long to put, yeah. put it into an engineer-friendly format so that somebody can know what the heck the patent's talking about. Yep. Yeah, and just to be clear on kind of what you were touching on, Mike, is there are a whole bunch of patents where the actual art found on the site was cited by the examiner in their review and rejecting it. We don't know. They might have found it independently without us, but it's safe to say that what gets put in there ensures that Stuff doesn't get overlooked and gets included. And so what can people do right now if they want to make a difference? Well, we, on a regular basis, post prior art requests, and we try to direct people from Stack Overflow with expertise. If you come to the site, you can just kind of, you can scroll through the current prior art requests and pick one off. It's actually, it's surprisingly fun to just pick one off in an area that you might know something about and then do some quick Google searches and answer it. So I'm going to be more direct. Go to the site right now. Go to askpatents.com. Yeah, follow Ask Patents on Twitter too because yep. you'll get tweets whenever we have a new one. That's a good point. On the front page, what you'll see is there are always a couple of prior art requests. They're easy to spot because they have a little bullseye on their tag. <laughs> and you can just click on that tag and it will show you all the current prior art requests. Or you can click on, the, there's a little ad on the right side that says participate in the patent process. Help us find prior art which automatically brings you the list of current applications. By, by participate, up. we mean destroy. So go, take a narrow, look. Narrow, narrow. Uh, scan for something you've seen. Um, and last, last quick question, Micah, is, is the Supreme Court really trying to decide if software patents should be completely outlawed, or is it more complex than that? <laughs> no, it's, that's, it's just that. That's exactly right. You, you pretty much, that's the, no. I think it's complicated. But I do know that there's, going to see, I guess it's a big case coming up on March 31st that has to do yeah, with- This is Alice Corp versus CLS Bank International. It's better known as the Red Hat case because Red Hat wrote an amicus- the, whatever the Latin for friend of the court is. Cray. Cray. Yep. Brief. Cray. Um, Cray. They're Cray. basically representing- Would you like green Cray or Cray. red Cray? <laughs> I'm not sure what's happened to us, but they basically are arguing, I think in theory, that patents on software shouldn't be permissible. That these are essentially algorithms that are math algorithms that are on a computer instead of on paper. 
I don't understand what's happening. Hooray. So, <laughs> so the case goes on. So is it, Mike, is it really possible they could outlaw software patents? It certainly, but it wouldn't happen on the 31st. I mean, that's when they're going to hear the argument. How long does it take them to do stuff at the Supreme Court? That's, that's lame. Well, they have to think really hard. It's so, a hard <laughs> so we're super out of time. Can we, can we pick briefly on, on Micah's former employer? I know he can't, but we, we can. What? I don't know what you're talking about. Sure, go ahead. We, worst comes to worst, we cut it out. Micah used to work for the dark side, right? So we, we've, not, we've already, the, fir the first real thing we did was bring Micah over to the right side of this fight and use his talents for- Work with, not for, but thank you very much. That's true. With. That's true. Intellectual. With. Uh, Speaking, speaking of yeah, working with... That's a with, little bit worse. We really that sounds, plus, that sounds we really more volunteer. Plus like a co-conspirator. Speaking of working with Micah, I should mention that Micah also is working with a couple of companies on consulting around patent issues. Uh, companies not who are trying to go and troll other companies, but companies who are afraid that other companies' patents threaten their technology sector. So if you have questions, you can reach Micah through, I guess, through Ask Patents. How do we find you, Micah? How, yeah. How are you reachable? I am Siegel at AskPatents.com will work. M-S-I-E-G-E-L at Ask. Patents.com. There you go. So if you want to talk to Micah, or if you want to partner, you want to promote something that helps reform patents, Micah is the man. He's become a voice for that. You know, we won't really trash intellectual ventures or Micah briefly. I have a more interesting question. Yeah. Uh, Julie Samuels has retired from oh, she did? EFF. Oh. Does she have a replacement? You guys uh, are just like, I don't know. That's a great question. She was the Mark Cuban chair to eliminate stupid software patents. Well, it's available if you're interested, Joel. Apparently that, that chair has opened up, I guess. Oh. I don't know. I, I have no idea. She just I, announced, I okay, I'm leaving to go do something else. And I don't know if that means that that position ran out or that somebody else in the EFF is going to. But there Isn't was no the announcement as to who was going to replace her. Well, Michael, we'll connect you with Mark Cuban. We should talk to him. <laughs> Isn't that the greatest, uh, the greatest title you ever heard? It is. No, it is the greatest Mark, title. But we, Cuban, we spoke with him very, very briefly Mark, yeah. early, early in this process. Yeah, she's we, friends of a friend of a. Yeah, and then he he, he participated in Ask Patents. We have some answers yeah. from Mark. Oh, that's, that's right. right. That's right. He posted an answer, and we know he's very, very into this cause. Yeah, so. Broadcast.com. I think. I think wasn't it his company that it was? Yeah. So, yeah. Michael, when when Michael right. is on Shark Tank, I'm going to take credit. That's what's going to happen. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, the last thing I just want to put our users to is I did go to uh, Intellectual Ventures, where Michael used to work is. Uh, a little bit on the NPE side of things. They own 62 million patents, if I'm reading this <laughs> no, correctly. What? Um, That's not correct. And they've never made anything. But <laughs> That's, not, th That's not true. They have that cookbook. They're run by Nathan Mervold, former CTO, I think, of Microsoft. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Former Microsoft guy. Author of the world's most expensive cookbook, I believe. He, he wrote a, I have a copy. A $1,000 cookbook. I hope you stole it. Nathan Merrill, I think, is, is viewed by programmers a little bit like that guy in Battlestar Galactica who like sold out to the Cylons. But I'd encourage you to go to NathanMerville.com, which I'd never done before. This is his personal page. This is a page he set up for himself. And if you read the About Nathan section, the About Nathan section starts with, this is presumably him writing it. This is his website. It's really his, probably his PR department. Maybe. This but is a guy with a dinosaur in his It's house. literally yeah. NathanMerville.com. <laughs> this is his personal website, not Intellectual Ventures. About Nathan. Nathan Mervold is often referred to as a visionary technology and business leader, is uh, the first description. In fairness, the dinosaur is pretty awesome. I like that. Well, he's not <laughs> claiming to be the visionary. He's just claiming that he's often referred to yeah. as there, a visionary. It does not That's cite sources. Call a weasel word it does not cite Wikipedia. sources. <laughs> All right. Um, from Stack Exchange headquarters in the frozen tundra of New York City, you have been listening to Stack Exchange <laughs> podcast number 56. Today's podcast has been sponsored by Patent Trolls of America, the PTA. With over 2,900 infringement lawsuits per year, we provide jobs for literally tens of Americans, including <laughs> patent lawyers, court workers, and Xerox shop employees. On behalf of producer Abby, audio editor David Greenlee, and now scrubbing the casserole pots in the Staggy Soon's Kitchen, ex-producer Alex, Jay Hanlon, Dave Fulton, Micah Siegel, and myself, Joel Spolsky. Goodbye, everybody! Thanks, bye. Bye. Thanks, bye. Bye. bye.
only slipped into incorrect. It's technically not offensive yet. Oh, a little bit. Yeah. Oh, I just. Oh my god. We're gonna edit it out. Uh, okay, that one's actually. Well, how did you, you not get that? that yeah. no. See, that's how inoffensive my brain is. I yeah, didn't... I didn't get it either. Oh my god. This this is why we pay an editor to do things for us. <sighs> What we should do is cut out the joke and just leave everyone's reaction to it because it's not possible anyone could actually guess it. They'll just know he said yeah. something terrible. Hooray. Okay, cut it. But we should promote his expertise in podcast shining and polishing. Yeah. Do you want to have him on the podcast? We we could have him on the podcast. That's really meta. Super meta. Yeah. Super meta. What if wait, 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 wait. What if? We don't have him on the podcast. We just have a conversation like he's on the podcast, and he has <laughs> he to edit in. in the correct responses. <laughs> like he's got to listen to the question and our reaction, and figure out what his response would be that would prompt that reaction. This would be awesome if we could pull it off. That's a big if. I don't think forty-five minutes of that would be that great. <laughs> He'll make it like twenty-two minutes. Yeah, we did, we also weren't talking for the first ten minutes because remember we had all the giggle fests. Yeah, like three in a row. <laughs> <laughs> that happens every week, actually. <laughs> Amicus Curry. Wait, who's that? <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing.